Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. Today, we speak with Colin LeDuc, who was one of the original founding partners of Generation Investment Management. Colin has a incredible track record in sustainable investing, having been at Sustainable Asset Management in Zurich and with Total in Paris. But he's also really been on the front cutting edge of ESG investing. And in our conversation, we sort of talk about the the end of incrementalism and how the future of sustainable investing is, is exciting and bright. The groundwork is laid and the capital is continuing to flow. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Colin, thanks so much for joining us at Experts Only. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me. Really look forward to talking about sustainability, sustainable investing, and generation. You know, you've obviously have an incredible passion in this space, but I sort of want to step back and ask, so what got you interested in, in sustainability and climate and the environment? Yeah, well, I have a bit of a, an eclectic upbringing, actually. I, I sort of uh, was one of these children that kind of grew up all over the world and traveled a lot as a kid and saw lots of things. And I was just reflecting on that and and one of my sort of the seminal kind of events was living in South Africa during apartheid and oh, wow. um, actually one of my uh, the, the person I was named after my grandfather Colin Bennett was actually a shadow minister in the Liberal Democratic Party that was the opposition to the apartheid government and so growing up in a family like that sort of made me very aware of social justice issues in yeah, particular of and uh what was interesting, that was also the beginning of the time of the divestment movement, because a lot of investors and businesses were pulling out of South Africa because of apartheid. So that, right. that got me sort of onto the idea that maybe capital could could be used for a force for good. I then went to a boarding school in the UK, which was actually um, a, a run by a bunch of Benedictine monks, actually. So we were <laughs> basically <laughs> had to focus a lot on theology and ethics. And I was had to do that at A-level, which is the sort of high school equivalent in the UK, yeah. which I'm sure you're aware. Um, and that really taught me a lot about um, environmental justice as well and environmental responsibility through ethics and, and morality. And that sort of led me into really understanding that really ultimately um, climate was something that I wanted to focus in on and got very interested in it at sort of undergraduate level and beyond. Yeah, and when did you start to really identify it as climate? As you're sort of going through this transition, like as you started, yeah. When did you realize it was like? I mean, it seemed like you know, the, the the I asked like thinking about like the, the period you guys started gener- generation, which we'll come back to in 2004. Climate change has been there, and there's been undertones of conversation in the academic community, but really from a cultural perspective, it didn't really come to light till you know in, in, into the 90s and early 2000s. Yeah, I mean, I was very fortunate. Um, at undergrad level, I did an internship with Total for a year in Paris. And oh, wow. That taught me a lot about low carbon and the challenges of energy, um, et cetera. And that was in 1993. <laughs> right. And then I went back to university for a year to graduate, and then they offered me a job in London, which I took because I thought the energy companies, the large international energy companies, would lead the way to a low carbon future. And that was, you know, I started work in sort of 94. And I very quickly realized, actually, that the the big 
successful incumbents were actually not going to accelerate the transition to net, net zero and low emissions as quickly as, as the scientists were telling us we needed to. And I also subsequently had a series of friends who were working in the city of London at the time and were, were meeting CEOs of all, all sorts because they, they held shares in those companies. And that, right. that got me very turned on to the idea that listen, investing is a very good way to influence outcomes of companies. And if you really want to drive sustainability, then being a shareholder is actually a pretty good idea and a very good leverage point. And yeah, that, that got me thinking about the power of capital and investing um, as a force for good. Interesting. You've built an amazing career around that. And I think we're, we're really at an inflection point today uh, where ESG is not, is not just a, uh, a term anymore. It's becoming a, a mainstream initiative that, that's that's bringing some significant capital to market. So I, I want to talk, you know, about sort of the founding of uh, of Generation, you know, flashing back to sort of 2004. Um, were you, by the way, were you still in London at the time? Had you made, had you made it to yeah. San Francisco? Yeah. No, no, I was still in London. Yeah. And I was in London for uh, the first 15 years of Generation and just been out in California for the last few years. So what led to the founding of Generation? I mean, it was, you guys were a little bit before the time, which is amazing, right? That you guys are visionary in terms of figuring out where to put significant capital work in solving these climate challenges. Well, I think it was, I think it was a series of very serendipitous um, events. I mean, there was, uh, timing was, was very much a driver. Um, I think there were a number of the founders that were at a point in their careers where they um, either had sort of outlived their current institutions or were looking to do something on their own. Um, and we're looking to do something that was 100% dedicated to sustainable investing. Um, and there was a series of relationships that really came together. Um, you know, I was working for a fund in Switzerland called Sustainable Asset Management that um, did a lot of right. the work around the, the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. And that had attracted quite a bit of interest from both Al Gore, who's one of our founders and our chairman, um, as well as Goldman Sachs, actually, which is where two of the other founders, David Blood and Mark Ferguson, came from. And we all sort of connected and got together and, and talked a little bit about the shared mission and vision to create a dedicated boutique focused purely on sustainable investing, where you were, you would put the disciplines of investing in finance um, uh, in terms of world-class investing and finance capability um, really on par with world-class sustainability expertise and, and put those two things together in a very integrated way. So we really found a generation um, on the principle of fully integrated sustainability into traditional asset management um, structures. And if you if you take you know David Blood as a senior partner and Al Gore as the chair, you know the two of them really epitomize what we were trying to do. Um, right. and, and fusing those two worlds together was really a core part of the founding. So it was, um, you know, we were, we, it, it felt um, like this idea was very much the right idea. And it took us a while to educate folks that um, you know, sustainable investing is best practice and that we could generate better long-term returns by investing sustainably. So yeah. the first few years, you know, it took us a, bit, a lot of advocacy and education work of the, of the investor base uh, to, to, to achieve what we've achieved. Yeah, I want to come back to that because I feel like the the time that you guys launched this, you know, today, you know, Q1 of 2020 before COVID, you know, record record ESG investing. And I think the trends are there, but you're out raising from LPs when people are barely talking about this issue and uh, you're able to be successful. How, you know, what was that? What was that like sort of cutting the teeth of a lot of these investors and bringing them to the table? Well, 
you know, we're incredibly grateful for our client support, in particular in those early days. And, yeah. um, you know, it, it does take a leap of faith from people to back a first-time fund of, of whatever stripe, um, exactly, including, yeah. in, including our own. And I think the cast of characters that we had around the table at the founding was particularly powerful. And what we're talking about here is is common sense, long-term investing. <laughs> so right. it, was, it was not as if we were, were talking about a black box methodology or anything of that nature. We were just very simply talking about a common sense worldview, which basically talked about sustainability being a driver of change in the economy and that picking a small number of very high quality companies and owning them for the long term uh, would, would outperform the market. So it, it was not, we weren't, you know, selling anything that was particularly complicated it was just a, 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 a an innovation relative to the rest of the market at the time which was to take esg seriously as a risk and return perspective that would help us generate better long-term returns so i think we had a lot of you know innovative groups that backed us at the beginning and we have, have sort of moved on from there and obviously as the the track record has built up over the years that has helped us bring in um, sure. bigger bigger clients pension funds other foundations charities that, that kind of sort of client base and how have you seen the you know as the the overall i guess market around sustainability has has improved and uh, you know the i think the understanding of it how have you seen your your investing thesis change or not change over that time the fundamental philosophy and, and principles of what we're doing have not changed. Yeah. Um, I think that the notion that taking a highly focused approach to investing, so we do public equity and private equity investing, right. so we, we feel we have a, a level of expertise around equity investing, and taking an approach to fundamental bottom-up research-driven stock selection uh, and, and putting that into a long-term investing context, that has not changed at all. I think what has evolved are the, is the level of sophistication and judgment um, uh, associated to how that asset selection process is going on. So I think the, the influence of ESG and the availability of information around ESG has actually come up a lot, and that, is, that has helped as well. And the sophistication yeah. and the nuance of the debate has come a very, very long way. Um, but the fundamental philosophy and thesis of generation remains very firmly that we are in the early stages of a transition to a sustainable economy and that that secular shift is affecting every aspect of the global economy and is a is playing out over the long term and that presents enormous investment opportunity if you are granted the license from your clients to take a long-term perspective and that is that is basically remained very very consistent over the last uh, 15 16 years that we've been in existence so for audience members that may not be as, as familiar with Generation, can you talk a little bit about some of the, the companies and some of the investments you've made along the way? Because you guys do cover a variety of different fields here, helping to identify uh, or helping to help hopefully solve the climate crisis. Sure, sure. So um, just, to, just to remind folks, I mean, Generation manages somewhere around $25, 26000000000 billion today. Um, and that is split across four different investment strategies. So there are two public investment strategies, a global equity fund and an Asia equity fund. And they are investing in you know, mid to large cap public equity companies um, that are listed, obviously, on, on stock exchange. Then you, we have two private equity strategies, a growth equity uh, fund and then a long-term equity business. And so I'm gonna f I'll focus a little bit on the growth fund because that's sure. where I spend most of my my time personally. But I'm sure you can appreciate there are certain aspects of the public market side that I can't talk about specific companies. Of course. But so I think if you 
if you look at the growth strategy in particular, we've got sort of three legs to the thematic focus of that strategy. And that's that's planetary health, human health, and financial inclusion. And th- those would be three sort of core pillars to a sustainable solutions type investing strategy. And so if you look specifically within the planetary health dimension of that, um, we will uh, look at companies, for example, that are in- enabling the transition to to clean energy, for example, or sustainable mobility or a sustainable food system. So if you just take a look, for example, at the energy space, um, you know, we will we will look at grid integration opportunities. We will look at anything that will help the scale up of renewables. Um, we'll look at things like pay-as-you-go um, energy access in emerging right. markets. So one of the companies in, in portfolio is a company called M Copa Solar that does that in East Africa, for example. Um, if you look at, we'll also touch on energy efficiency and building efficiency and things like that in the energy complex. If you look at the transition to sustainable mobility, um, we're obviously extremely focused on the electrification of mobility. So that would be expressed through investments in um, an electric uh, technology company that enables um, uh, electric buses and, and other types of sort of form factors, a company called sure. Proterra that you, you oh, yeah. may be familiar with. We'll also look at uh, swappable battery systems for electric motorbikes. Um, we're, we're invested in a business um, in Taiwan called Gogoro that does that. Um, we'll also look at things like uh, fleet optimization. So how do you drive efficiency across the trucking market? So yep. we are invested in a business called Convoy, for example, that runs a digital freight marketplace that enables much better matching of um, loads with trucks to, to drive uh, efficiency in that market. And then if you look at something like the food system, um, we're, we're obviously focused on anything that is enabling a much more sustainable food system. And that would range from um, food waste in restaurants through companies like Toast, for example, that provide um, ERP and software systems to restaurant owners. Um, we'll look at precision ag tech. So we'll look at companies like SIBO that deliver um, highly precise insights to farmers uh, for yield prediction. On, on farms. Uh, we'll look at obviously the alternative protein space, which has got quite a bit of attention. Sure. We're invest, invested in a business called Nature's Find. It is a microbe based protein for meat substitutes, um, et cetera. So those are just a, a few of them, you know, very yeah. much technology innovation driven businesses that are accelerating the transition to sustainability across, you know, core areas like energy, mobility, and food. I do want to get into sort of the, some of the underwriting, or not the underwriting, the education you guys do and, and look ahead. But before doing that, where yeah. in the sort of underwriting process for these companies, you know, obviously you're doing traditional classic underwriting, but where do you start to layer in the sustainability piece of that? Sure. So one of the founding principles of generation is the integration of sustainability into the investing process. And what that means is that we we integrate that in in every aspect of the investment process. So generation starts with research. So we do a lot of primary research, which um, is is sort of epitomized and and delivered through what we refer to as roadmaps, which are essentially sector deep dives that look at what is going on in a sector and explicitly recognizes the environmental and social drivers in that sector alongside quote traditional drivers of change. And then we'll identify, and in that, so the sustainability is integrated by looking at environmental and social drivers alongside traditional drivers, and then we'll identify which companies are well positioned. We will then get to know them. And if we do want to really look at underwriting and investment in these companies, we will then drive to the next level of the investment process, which is really about evaluating 
the quality of the business, the quality of the management team, and, and the valuation of the security. And yeah. in Classic each energy. of those, we will we will integrate what we what we refer to as kind of long term success factors or sustainability factors in our definition of quality. Right. So within the management quality space, we will look at is the company um, taking care of all its stakeholders properly. You know, what is the culture of the company? You know, how is it truly managed for the long term for the benefit of all stakeholders? You know, those kind of questions. Um, equally, on the business quality level, we will um, look at questions like um, the durability of returns. We will look at things like is the company providing something that society truly needs and is uh, system positive, for example, as a, as a product and service as it gets built up. So. And then when you're thinking about the valuation of the security, we will very much look at aspects around the um, sustainability of the competitive advantage period. So yeah. um, you know, how long will this company be able to generate the kind of returns we think it can generate, uh, which is often just an expression of the sustainability and the competitive advantage of a company. Sure. So it's it's very much, and then there's a whole bunch of stuff that we do post-ownership as well in terms of engagement um, with companies, both public and private. And which is a very, very important aspect of what we do. So it's really about integrating sustainability right across the investment process rather than having a separate group, for example, um, that is doing this work. Our analysts right. do all of the work. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, right, right, right. They're kind of like superhuman. <laughs> you know, they do all of the financial analysis, all of the research, like all of the analysis together to, to get a very complete and holistic view so that we can invest with very high conviction. Amazing. Amazing. And, you know, looking back, uh, you know, it's just reading some of the, the, the history of generation, you guys have helped define some of the metrics around sustainability as a whole, right? Where we're now getting to a point where folks have some common metrics to measure off of uh, as an industry. You know, what was the importance, whether it be, you know, helping to, to uh, lay out the sustainable accounting, the SASB uh, standards, for instance, uh, or you know, really helping to define impact investing as a whole, right? I mean, when you look at when you started to where we are today, impact investing was 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 hardly a nomenclature at the time, and now it's you know its own genre. Like, what? Why did why did why did you guys as leaders feel that it was really important to engage in those conversations and help develop those metrics? Well, first and foremost, we're, we're a mission-driven business, so right. we, we are we are trying to prove the investing case for sustainable investing, and we are trying to advocate for sustainable capitalism, broadly speaking. So, we actually um, allocated a certain proportion of our profits directly into the Generation Foundation to really, you know, try and perpetuate this way of thinking across the capital markets. So, we felt that that part of our mission was essentially, you know, ecosystem development and, and right. field building. And you know, then we there's obviously a level of self-interest in that. But sure. um, I think the, the it was actually really about driving our mission, and we're we're incredibly um, proud of the founding work that we've done with many of these organisations um, to to get them going, um, and they're now scaling up and helping mainstream some of this thinking across the market. Because I think one of the big dangers of what is going on with the mainstreaming of ESG and sustainable or responsible investing is is you know the, the patchwork approach that that the market is taking at the moment. And some people are, are implementing with a lot of rigor and integrity, you know, others are not. And I think right. it's an important part of the maturation of the the market, if you like, uh, as it as it comes to ESG and sustainable investing, that there is rigor and integrity to what is happening. And so, we want to share our thinking, and we're very open book about that um, as to. Uh, 
how we do that and what we think should happen in terms of some of these definitions. Yeah, I think about whether it be the SASB standards or folks, uh, you know, I've got a good friend who works in the corporate risk space who doesn't come from climate at all, but now has a peaked interest in it and him understanding the metrics that have been developed and the importance of having that baseline to educate himself. And you get folks who have been in these industries without the sustainability uh, lens now understanding how to implement it, it will be that much more important to growing, growing the space here going forward over the next 10 years. So um, I do want to talk about, you guys have an amazing sustainability trends report. I think this is the fourth version that you guys have published. I want to ignore for a second the COVID impact, which is obviously hard to ignore in 2020. But um, you know, what trends have you seen over the last four years of publishing this report uh, that, that are important to sort of pull out? Yeah, I appreciate you highlighting that, John. Um, You know, the Sustainability Trends Report is an annual attempt to um, really just put a bit of a stake in the ground as to what we're seeing um, with regards to the state of the sustainability transition. And it's really mining a lot of what Generation is doing at the investment process level and trying to put it into the public domain. Um, It is also attempting to use very objective data sets to to just demonstrate what is happening with sustainability and the sustainability transition. So um, this is indeed the fourth year that we've published it. Um, and the to your question about uh, different trends beyond COVID, I think, I think you know, maybe three worth highlighting. I think in the healthcare space, I think we've seen a, a massive uptick in the trend to highly personalized um, healthcare. So that is obviously driven by a lot of technology adoption and, and is also increasingly enhanced by um, some of the remote capabilities that, that we now have with regards to healthcare. So there's quite yeah. a bit of work around that and, and how that relates as well to accessing healthcare for underprivileged people. So that's one major trend. Um, and another may be um, the commitments that are being made to net zero by the corporate community um, that have been following a lot of the government commitments yeah, that have been made. Um, that is has been fascinating to watch over the last two or three years. And yeah. it seems that companies are sort of stumbling over themselves to make these net zero commitments. I think that is a that is a real trend um, worth keeping an eye on. And then I think the whole debate around the future of work, which you know has been mm. accelerated and influenced by COVID, but previously was a very hot area of debate around sustainability. So what does meaningful work mean? Uh, what does a minimum wage mean? Um, you know, what what does automation mean um, for jobs? You know all of that, all of that work, um, and and defining how work looks like going forward has an enormous impact on the social dimensions related to sustainability. And um, that is a trend that we've been tracking within the STR report for the last few years as well. I, I love the, the the recent version. I'm just going to quote it for a second because I think it's phenomenal. We believe the action and momentum triggered by events in 2020 will power be a powerful catalyst for sustainability going forward. First of all, why do you guys believe that? And then second, how do you use then this tool within, do you use this within underwriting going forward? Is there a lot of market research that's pulled into these sustainability reports that you're able to then use as you're looking uh, as a lens of looking at companies? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think just to come into your second part of your question first, the, um, you know, SCR is really an, uh, an expression of what is happening in the investment process. Um, right. So, you know, it's it's actually the SCR is informed by the investment process rather than the other way around. Um, 
So it's really a sort of summary, if you like, of some of the thinking that, that you see um, if you were to look beneath the herd of generation um, in terms of the roadmaps in particular that I referred to earlier. Um, but but to, your, to your first part of the question, you know, how is COVID accelerating sustainability? I think it, it's really along two, two, two dimensions. One is, is cultural where I think COVID has demonstrated the futility of much of our activity pre-COVID. And so (laughs) be be it sort of, you know, hedonistic consumption, and how that just does not lead to, you know, happiness, frankly, um, or to, you know, the very unnecessary amounts of business travel that was going on, for example. Um, And so the what what has been very interesting is that a lot of sustainability advocates have been saying this stuff for a long time. Stop traveling so much. Right. Stay more local. Live a more humbler life. You know, d- d- you don't be, need to be so asset heavy. Like all of these things um, have been massively accelerated by COVID. So we think the behavior change associated to sustainability and a sustainable lifestyle um, has really been demonstrated through COVID. Um, obviously, there are other sides to that story in terms of the abruptness of the lockdowns and what that has had the effect that has had on the social capital in society but um and within families and in communities and etc but and in companies and whatever but i think that that notion of just shining a light on how crazy our lifestyles were pre-covid um is, is a big part of it right I'll come to the second bit in a second, but, but you've got a question. Yeah, I want to follow up. With, that's that's a fascinating uh, view. And I feel like, so I wrote a piece uh, earlier this year on from Greta to the boardroom, looking at 2019 and how there's both this cultural growth in the discussion of climate as a as an issue, of course. And this, as you mentioned in your the second part of the report, you know, amazing trends happening in the corporate leadership perspective. But then how do we take what you just laid out as the drive on an individual level, right, around sustainability and communicate that out to folks so they understand the, the impacts, right, that, that of the life changes they've made this year uh, on, on climate and sustainability. I think people may not think of it that way, right? So it's, you know, how do we um, sort of take advantage of this situation we're in and communicate out to uh, folks beyond those of us that track these issues that this is actually really important for, for climate and sustainability? Yeah, well, I, I, think, I think there's... A lot of people have actually realized the silver linings uh, relative to their own well-being. Um, yeah. Within, it's sort of like this weird mix of, on one level, people feel a lot of mental anguish, but on another level, they feel you know a, a higher level of life satisfaction. Right. Um, right. And uh, so I think highlighting that is important. I think also, as you, you may know, what's happened to emissions this year globally, but you know, initially in March, April, they they dropped by about eight, ten percent. Um, right. They haven't. They have come back pretty strongly, uh, mainly because a lot of the restarts of many global economies has actually been a bit of a brown restart rather than a green restart. Unfortunately, hmm. where um, firing up coal plants is uh, quicker than building a whole bunch of renewables. Right. So you know that that is that has happened, unfortunately. So the emission story this year is going to be a bit of a wash, actually. By the look of it, um, in terms of hmm. how it um, how we're pa- we're powering back. So the, the you know I, I would just come to the second part part of uh, the answer around how does COVID accelerate sustainable trends? I would say, you know, the role of the public sector has been, um, you know, demonstrated in in how str- how when governments want to act, they can and they do yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at epic scale and. So I think what is what that has said to me anyway is that it's shown how pathetic the attempts on climate have been. 
because right. the governments are capable of doing what they've done on COVID, which is basically really directing society very aggressively and pumping loads of money into something. And it just shows you that even though they understand that climate is an issue, they just have not acted at the same level of seriousness with regards to climate. And we think that will change. We think yeah. that will change. We, we think the pendulum is swinging quite aggressively to um, much, much more public intervention with regards to, to dealing with a climate problem in particular. And that will come through, um, you know, Green New Deal type stuff or, um, you know, depending on who gets into the White House, different climate plans, yeah. um, all through to the EU recovery plan, and et cetera, which are all very green in the way they, they are approaching a recovery of the economy. So I think what it has shown is there are limits to market-based solutions to collective challenges, such as COVID, such as climate. And COVID is true, truly a dress rehearsal for climate. And I think there's, there's a lot of positives to be taken out of that in terms of the levers the government can actually pull. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I really look at 2021 as a pretty, uh, be really interesting, obviously, depending on what happens in, in the White House race, but it could be uh, a monumental, significant infrastructure investment that we've never seen before in this space um, if, if we take the right steps. So I do want to look ahead for a second before uh, before wrapping up, and you know I like to talk a lot uh, about twenty. I, re- I have a thesis that the next ten years is the last ten years are about setting the setting the table for for addressing climate. The next ten years is about implementation and, and real action. Um, so I do want to step forward to twenty thirty, but I'm just going to quote Morningstar here for a second, who looked at sort of ESG investing during uh, you know the trends, but also what's happening here. Uh, in our current recession. And the positive story that's actually to be told about how the returns continue to, to, to be positive in, in ESG investing. And we've made, made it, we haven't made it through the downturn yet, of course, but you know, the, the, the trends are, are looking good. So looking at the last, the work you guys have done since 2004, for you personally, it would be before that, you know, what is the next, if, you're, if you step forward to 2030 you know, and look back, what does the next 10 years look like for ESG investing? Well, I think we're coming to the end of the beginning of the mainstreaming of ESG. So I think the we're you know they, I think there's maybe three things to think about in the next ten years. Um, you know, one is that the era of greenwashing, I think, is coming to a, an abrupt end. Right. So I think that rigor of scrutiny around ESG claims for investors is is going to is going to be a major topic. Somewhat related to that is is the second bit, which is reporting. So reporting will become mandatory yeah. on sustainability factors in a very serious way. And that is through the TCFD, through the EU taxonomy, through a whole bunch of other things, that where, because central banks in particular are trying to aggregate up an understanding of systemic climate risk. Right. And they cannot manage central bank levers of change um, without understanding the level of risk that's being run in the system. So they, they will be imposing that. So expect a lot more and a lot more rigorous reporting. Do you feel like the and standard I, is there in the US to, to accept that reporting? Um, I think it's coming. I think yeah. it's coming. Um, you know, I, th- I think, uh, you know, other areas of the world may be, may be a little bit further ahead. But you sure. know, I think obviously the US, when it moves, it, it can move very quickly and is, is obviously, you know, such a powerful force in the global economy that uh, and you know let's not forget things like america's pledge right where you know right. sort of there's so many businesses moving in this direction already and states moving in this direction and you know the innovation here is unparalleled and etc right so there's there's lots of um 
very positive things to say about the U.S.'s journey to to, to reaching the Paris Agreement, despite their federal position currently. And, sure. And I think the third thing is is I would say in the next ten years for ESG is is sort of the notion of sort of the end of incrementalism um, hmm. when it comes to transition risk. So that is the, what I mean is a transition to a sustainable system. So that is both in terms of um, transitions being imposed on us, so through more extreme weather events, for example, right. um, shutting down shutting down economies like it's done on the west coast of the U.S. this week, uh, last week, um, etc. As well as transition risk being, um, you know, accelerated through market-based changes or rule changes, um, shifting people to a much more uh, uh, transformational response to to dealing, in particular, with climate, but other sustainability topics as well. So, I, I think the notion that the markets are just going to be left to inch their way towards a sustainable system um, is is just basically not. You can't you can't plan on that for the next decade. Right. I think there's going to be very large very profound changes, which will leave a lot of assets stranded that are not on the right side of history and will accelerate um, you know, the positive outcome for many other types of assets and economies. Uh, I, I hope you're right. And I agree with you on, <laughs> on the approach, Colin. Thank you so much. And I'm going to end a, a, a question I sort of ask everyone who, who comes on, but if you could go back to yourself coming out of boarding school in, in London and could sit down and, and I guess in London, you probably could have a beer when you're coming out of boarding school. What, what piece of <laughs> advice would you give yourself? So, um, yeah, I think it would be, um, so I'm half Dutch, actually. So one of, one of my favorite sayings in Dutch is, which basically means that um, you've always got no, but you can always get yes. So oh, right. my advice to myself would be, you know, don't accept no, because, you know, basically go out and have the courage of your conviction and keep asking, asking for a yes. So that would be my advice to myself. That's amazing. Well, Colin, thank you so much for the time. And thank you so much for joining us at Experts Only. I really appreciate it, John. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for joining us at Experts Only. Really lucky to have Colin on today and to really get an in-depth look at a little bit of the history of ESG and where things are going. I want to thank our producer, Carly Batten, and thank the team at Generation Investment Management for helping to put this together. As always, you can find more episodes at cleancapital.com, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.